0: Hello, welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Dorian Linsky. On today's show, Michael Gove has a plan to triple the size of Cambridge, among other things. What is his latest plan for housing and is it workable? Plus, with the two main parties abandoning climate policies, we discuss climate despair and what to do about it. And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, we're talking about the second half of the Barbenheimer double bill. Christopher Nolan's epic biopic of J. Robert Oppenheimer, the man who built the bomb. Let's meet the panel. Hannah Fern is a columnist for the iPaper. Hello, Hannah. Hello. Uh, the Farage bank row rolls on, claiming the scalp of NatWest boss Alison Rose. Like most people, we on the podcast took NatWest's word for it when the story first broke. Farage, annoyingly, has been vindicated and is remaking himself as a crusader for the banking rights of the little guy. Should this story be as big as it is? Is the BBC uh, and anyone else who, who printed NatWest's original claim overcompensating a tad?
1: I think there's a bit of that. I mm. mean... It's a real mistake from Nat West because Farage, being who he is, I did the same, by the way, as everyone on the podcast. I immediately, of course, felt that the BBC reporting must be accurate. Uh, it rang true for everybody, I think, on the on, you know on the centre left. The thing is, Farage is is very good, as we know, at politicising any sort of. Uh, Minor issue that seems to champion the small person, the underdog, and painting himself as an underdog, which of course he is not. Yeah. Um. But I do think there are some parts of this story that are quite troubling. It is really worrying, given that banking is such a personal um, and uh, you know protected issue, that we had a, a leak to a to the BBC, not to a fringe publication, that was incorrect about a significant figure in UK public life. I'm concerned by that and i think it's right that she's gone actually really yeah i am i I think that's quite surprising because it wasn't
0: entirely inaccurate no they were saying it was just this one thing and it wasn't but that one thing was a factor that he had fallen below the the threshold
1: but the fact that this is such an inflammatory issue and that they didn't get their facts absolutely straight before speaking to the press in any form is um for me, a huge communications mistake that something as significant as a banking institution should not be getting wrong. The other thing is that unfortunately, for those uh, who perhaps initially sort of laughed at the story when it first came out, um, I think Farage has got a point about some of this, not about himself, because clearly the legislation that exists, which allows everybody who, uh, you know, is of the British state, every citizen to have the right to a bank account, the legislation was not flouted for him. That's He's been vindicated in so much as the initial story was wrong, but actually there's been no breach of the rules for mm. him. He was offered a NatWest account as an alternative. Any uh, bank is allowed, should they choose, to not offer additional services apart from a basic, what we used to call checking account, I guess we now call current account. But it's true that there's evidence that Many people, particularly in fact Muslims, and The Guardian were reporting this as early as 2014, but nobody took any notice, um, have found that the legislation is not being applied fairly.
0: But Farage them. isn't interested in that. No. he? He's not interested in people um, Absolutely not. who come from other countries. He, Why do he's I talked think this... only about small business people, white people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah exactly. So that, I suppose that's what I mean. There's an issue here, but that's not the issue that affects him nor is it the issue that he is concentrating on
1: no the reason it has legs is that there has become it's become clear that there is an issue it's just that nobody cared until someone like but it's actually nothing to do with him him no he's just managed to highlight an issue that we clearly have in our society and people care about it now because it actually is an important issue the fact is it has nothing to do with him he's just managed he's a very good communicator political communicator and that's why uh, it's now got legs a bit uh, depressing,
0: really. <laughs> it really is. Uh, Seth Tovote is a journalist for Open Democracy and author of Behind Closed Doors, The Secret Life of London Private Members Clubs. Hi, Seth. Hello, Dorian. Rishi Sunak has associated Labour with criminal gangs in a tweet um, regarding uh, refugee policy. Uh, this follows Labour's attempt uh, a few weeks ago to link Sunak with sex offenders. Is 2024 going to be the dirtiest election campaign ever? do you think?
2: I mean it's going to be pretty awful like this, but there's plenty of precedent in most elections for really quite vile stuff being thrown around, and I can think of even worse that's been thrown around in the past um the well, problem has for example um well p m on leader on leader i mean leader on leader is unusual, but at a constituency level, you get stuff like the famous Campaign of 1964 involving the yeah. if you want an N word for a neighbour vote liberal or labour slogan for the sure but on I the mean, constituency level great.
0: but this seems like the, the, singling out the your opposite yeah. number and saying that they personally yeah. are supporting sex offenders or people smugglers yeah. that seems I can't think uh, of well, Blair where? doing that to Major or Thatcher. Well, Thatcher probably did say a few things about
2: Michael Foot. <laughs> I, I think um, some of what Michael Howard was saying about Blair, for instance, doesn't go right. far off that in terms of vitriol. But you're right, it's particularly sordid and unpleasant. And it's up there with the old barrister's question of, uh, so when did you stop beating your wife? It's much more about emotion and implanting that level of mistrust and paranoia than it is about reasoned debate. And what makes this really insidious, actually, speaking for a moment as a journalist, is that I couldn't say this stuff. I mean, there's no evidence for all of this. And nine times out of ten, a journalistic organisation that would run with this kind of thing would get sued. But we take it for granted that part of the rough and tumble of politics is just you take it on the chin and and it's all fair play. And actually, it's really quite nasty. It just makes the whole political arena ever more sordid.
0: Well, if a journalist did what I think Grant Shapps did and said that Labour was the political wing of just stop oil, which is an absolutely absurd Hmm. claim based on nothing, based on the fact that the same guy has donated to both. But, you know, I'm sure that some people who've donated to the Conservative Party have also donated Hmm. to uh, a number of things that perhaps the Conservative Party is not Hmm. to be associated with.
2: And so if a journalist... Like you said,
0: so that that would be a
2: a big problem. Ironically, I think Chaps is in very serious trouble over a technicality, which is that he printed it on parliamentary stationery, presumably because uh, his government department wouldn't have anything to do with this. But there's a huge amount of precedent for parliament coming back and saying anything party political – it's an improper use of stationery. Right. But all that prompts is a slap on the wrist saying, don't do it again. And it's the technicality. It's not on the major issue, which is, why on earth are you trying to <laughs> insinuate these things? On Monday, Michael
0: Gove set out government plans to build more homes. Part of the plan includes building a quarter of a million in Cambridge over the next two decades, which a local MP, none too please, says will triple the size of the city. Everyone agrees more homes should be built, but they prefer it if it wasn't in their backyard so what are the politics of house building Hannah you are a housing expert
1: (laughs) Um, for my sins
0: Gove uh, defended uh, the government's house building efforts uh, by claiming that they've been Bob the Builder
1: (laughs) nobody's been Bob the Builder in this country for about 30 years that's
0: nonsense how how does it hold up
1: the whole thing is nonsense so he is talking about this great achievement of getting to 1 million before the end of the parliament Um, those who've bothered to do any adding up will realise that it's less than they actually should have achieved if they've got anywhere near their 300,000 a year, um, which is what they always promised that they would achieve. That was never going to happen for a lot of reasons, um, which have been pointed out to the Conservative Party over and over and again, not just by the opposition, by politicians of all stripes, by experts in the house building industry, both actually on what you might call, I suppose the Liberal Left, like the housing associations and those really campaigning for support for homeless people and so on, but also by the big money makers in British house building also saying to them, there's none, you know, there's so many problems uh, structurally you need to make some changes. Which are? so Well, they, they, they say they've listened and, and and Gover set out some proposals which he thinks will tackle all the problems. And I'll say what they are first and then I'll tell you all the reasons why he's wrong. So first of all, he wants a government-sponsored bunch of uh, development corporations, which are se- essentially sort of quangos that would oversee uh, developments in specific areas like Cambridge, as you've described. Is this is would... planning
0: super squad. So
1: the, and on top of that, additionally, right. there's a squad of super planners. Goodness knows who they are, but they are the best experts in, in the planning industry that they're going to bring together and get the best minds uh, on the problem, including apparently new planning skills funding uh, and a new fund to actually clear the backlog of planning applications This is what I would say
0: though, If somebody, I don't know anything about this really and if somebody said what would you do I'd I'd just get the best planners I'd just get all the best planners together and let them do some planning. So
1: two more things that they said they're going to do. Number one is change rules so that basically a load of shops in the high street like um, bookies that often sit empty takeaways aren't being used and so on can be turned into homes and also protected development rights so allowing more types of development to be legally permissible quite easily. All of these things have been tried, not only by Labour, but by them. (laughs) So they're simply re-announcing things they've already tried with no clear answer. Yes, I think that development corporations are a brilliant idea. They were pioneered in the Garden City movement when places like Letchworth and Wellwyn and so on were established when we needed a large uh, expansion of homes uh, in the middle of the um, last century. They were really successful, but they were government corporations. He's talking about government-sponsored corporations. I have no idea what that means. To me, it sounds not a lot like the state's taking responsibility for what actually needs to happen. This squad of planners, we've already got some of the best minds in planning in Europe. The problem is two things. Number one, this government has scrapped development targets, which means that local authorities have... You know, an aim to get things built. And so it means councillors can listen to NIMBYs in their area and say, oh, no, none of our people around here actually want this and stop it happening. So the planners are there, but they can't work because the councils are, you know, the government's kowtowing to Tory councillors.
0: Do they need super councillors as well. Uh, That would be great.
1: I don't know, this funding thing really bothers me. He's also talked about um, setting up another new quango, um, which he's calling the Office for Place, which is all about the kind of design side of stuff, because I'm sure you'll have heard a lot of the discourse about Gove wants everything to be beautiful. The Tories love to talk about, you know, what... Uh, housing looks like, that one of the reasons people don't like development in their backyard isn't to do with the fact that we're underfunding schools, doctors' surgeries and everything else. It's actually just that they look ugly, which I disagree with, but that's what they say. They're setting up this new Quango office for place, which is supposed to look at beautiful development and get planners all getting their best minds on what places should look like. The Tories actually scrapped almost identical uh, quango that existed that was established by L- New Labour in 1999 called CAPE, which was doing exactly that job. They mm-hmm. came into power, scrapped it, and now they're realising, 15 years later, they're going to have to rebuild it. So, uh, I and mean, this is before we even get into the green belt, which I'm sure we all want to talk about. Yeah. But there's so many reasons to be frustrated by this. It. it is, this is just politicking this is about the election they've suddenly realized that people really do care about housing that the housing crisis is hitting every part of the electorate whether you're renting whether you're you know want to get on the social housing waiting list whether you own and you're facing mortgage crisis everyone's affected they know they need to say something so they're saying everything that they've already said before and putting in a load of suggestions that have already been tried and didn't work
0: um seth Uh, The Conservative commentator Tom Harwood um, has done a a stopped clock um, and said uh, something I agree with um, cities (laughs) with higher population densities are are a good idea. Is he an outlier? Is there actually appetite for this across the spectrum?
2: He's representative of a demographic split in the Conservative Party because Tom Harwood is one of the token under 60 Conservative voters Mm. but the thing is that most conservative voters... Or I'll put it another way. But the thing is, the Conservative Party has placed great emphasis, post-Thatcher, on this idea of the right to own your own home, the right to property. Um, a disproportionate number of Tory voters either are owner-occupiers outright or else have a mortgage. And for them, their house is their biggest asset. It's the most valuable thing they'll ever own. Saying to your voters we're going to devalue your asset by flooding the property market with new properties and making things more affordable is never going to go down well. And this is actually the political problem the Conservative Party has. It's that there's no easy way to reconcile these two arguments. Um, you have growing Generation X, Generation Z, who are disenfranchised, unless they've got parental wealth, they're not going to be on the housing ladder in any way, shape or form. And then you have this growing group of ever older voters disproportionately voting Tory who need to be placated. I mean, yeah, but I mean, fuck them. <laughs> Basically, like you cannot run a country hmm? where you, are,
0: you will not build... Uh, enough houses because then because of uh, supply
2: and demand, well, uh, that will bring down the cost. Like the last few decades not, uh, are an example oh. of how we've tried to do exactly that. I mean I agree with you but that's how we've got here. It's that there is a political difficulty and so you can pay lip service as much as you like saying oh we're going to regenerate cities and we're going to build the right houses in the right places which is the classic nimbyist code for yeah. we won't build any of these in Tory voting areas. They'll be shoved into Labour voting areas and there's a long history of trying to demonstrate Demographically tweak marginal constituencies in this way as well. Of course, what they often don't realise is um, something like the New Towns are a classic example. Um, new Towns were actually a labour attempt to try and flood conservative constituencies with Labour voters. All that happens is the next time you get redistricting and actually set the constituency boundaries, you're setting up new seats because there are so many new voters. Hmm. That's um, a very good
1: point. Yeah, But you're, the thing is, you're absolutely right about that's the situation that we're in. But the one thing that Tories seem to have forgotten, maybe they're just pushing it down the line another five years, another 10 years to the next electoral hmm. cycle. But actually, this balance is dying out. Hmm. So yes, the majority of uh, conservative voters are own, owner occupiers in some way, but people with a mortgage are now feeling the p- mm. feeling the pinch mm. of the housing crisis uh, and the financial crisis that the housing crisis leads to. You know, the, the poor structure of our economy, the fact that no one can afford to just have a home, so they're increasingly reliant on the people who own their home outright yep. with no mortgage. That is the majority of homeowners, which most people don't realise actually most people who own a home don't have a mortgage on it. That's a shocking statement to a lot of people. But those people are getting older and older and they are dying out, literally dying out. So it's not a good strategy for electoral survival it beyond next be. year.
2: But where we have an issue is is the natural churn of British politics. So going back to the 1960s when they did the first sort of British election study, the natural conclusion of that was the next generation is going to be Labour. It's going to be non-stop Labour governments in infinity because these people will get older and the electorate will change. What they didn't take into account was actually people getting more right-wing as they got older and the Conservatives gaining voters in that way. Now, where you're right, I think, on this is that this is not a sustainable situation. And we still don't know what's going to happen with asset transfer. We don't know, for example, if the current generation of people who are literally dying out are going to pass on their property Mm – or if with increasing um, lifespan or not, because of course spans are actually getting shorter, certainly for men in the UK. If we're going to have some ever more exaggerated uh, different divides
0: between housing, well, all the studies show that people are not now getting right wing as they get older yeah. in the same way, which is partly so that, to do with yeah. housing. Yeah, yeah, it's partly to do with housing. Um, Hannah um, on the Green Belt, Gove is obviously he talks about the virgin land of the Green Belt, which <laughs> yeah. is weird. But won't some of the Green Belt have to go?
1: arguably you can argue that it should and i i i think i generally support the view that it's time to build on some of the green belt but even if you never even if you had a strong ideological opposition to that position and you would not allow yourself to cross that line the way the green belt is talked about misunderstands what it is so the virgin land thing is classic classic mm. misnomer about what green belt is there is a lot of What's known as brownfield land inside the greenbelt. Why we can't be building on that and talking about that as part of the brownfield strategy, I don't know. A huge, you can Google this if you are interested. There are some brilliant photos easily available online of what the greenbelt actually looks like. There isn't anything green at all. So, yeah, this is making it sound like they're doing something. Almost ecological in a time of a climate crisis. Uh, it's traditionally conservative, but it's nonsense. There are there's huge already developed space that can be that can be used within the green belt.
0: What do you make of Labour's plans on housing?
1: Well, so Labour suffers from some of the same problems in that it says it makes promises it's previously made and then failed to follow up on. Um, But it does at least talk about some things that the Tories seem to be incapable of talking about. So when it talks about its numbers, which are actually similar numbers to the Conservatives' promise, there's not a huge gap between them in terms of numbers per year, but they do at least talk about social housing numbers. They talk about getting to a million um, social new social homes within five to ten years. They want to talk about it within a parliament, actually. If you look at their plans, it's much, much longer term. They do talk about going back to having local authority housing targets so that local areas can't just use NIMBYism as an excuse to get out of their responsibilities. They're much more rational about the Green Belt. I mean, the Green Belt thing for me is I think they should really take that and and talk about it because I think there's a real uh, chance for them to win the argument on this. Only eleven percent of this country is built on Greenbelt or not only eleven percent of the United Kingdom, actually not England, but still there's a lot of space out there well, whenever you just go and,
0: if you're driving anywhere in England you can you, you can, can sort see, of see that for yourself the whole idea that it's just like it's full to the rafters
1: is and, and that's before we get to the density argument, which I actually also agree that density is a good thing, and Europe mm-hmm. is much better at this if you look in you know European medium and large sized cities you'll find most people in the in, in those sort of towns and cities are living in apartments or small homes of two stories that are set on top of another small home of two stories they're just much better at building a system that suits that this isn't just about the development it's also about the legal frameworks if you think about the leasehold crisis we've got in this country they don't have that stupid situation of leasehold um there's a, I could spend hours talking about that I won't derail the conversation but they're just much better at that and we should learn from that density is a good thing
0: Gove has a tradition of being um, less fuck the poor than most Tories but there's no mention of social housing or affordability in this announcement it's just again is he just sort of like well that's not politically useful.
2: Yeah. I mean, if you compare this to uh, where the Tories were going to the 2019 election, where unashamedly the Red Wall strategy was about trying to win over non-traditional Tory voters. Sorry. As Hannah said, uh, we're now in an election season. And what's interesting is most Tories will confide quite openly they're going after a 1992 core vote strategy. It's trying to hold on to what they have. It's much more about owner-occupiers um, than it is about reaching out and bridgeheads the new voters... And as for this particular proposal, this is Cambridge we're talking about. The growth in Cambridge, I think this is actually very, very important that you expand somewhere like Cambridge because it is one of the engines of the British economy right now. But the growth is in the tech sector. It's made up of very affluent people and very high paying jobs who will always be able to pay top dollar. This is not going to bring down house prices in Cambridge, arguably quite the reverse. And I think that's actually quite short-sighted because if you know Cambridge, if you know it has lots of um, quite impoverished areas, places like Abbey, Arbury, King's Edges, um, you can't all be people working in tech. They actually have to be support workers. They have to be people in manual occupations who are actually providing the support for that economy to take place. And finally, is there much of a sign of
0: providing the facilities that the people living in these homes are going to need? Obviously, everybody knows about parts of the country where it's very hard to get um, a GP appointment or. Um, a school place or even to get any dentist at all. And that seems – it seems to be that if you're trying to accommodate people, um, you're going to need to provide all of these other things. Is that part of Gove's uh,
2: big – We don't know because the detail hasn't been fleshed out. But the signs aren't promising. We've gone from 20 or 30 years ago when we were really poor at doing quality housing to actually doing quite well as far as quality housing, including affordable housing – but there's still too much of a tendency of not building shops and cafes and bars and crucial facilities nearby, let alone transport infrastructure. Cambridge is a bit better than most for transport infrastructure, for a whole number of things to do with the shire outside as well, that have been going on, that have been called sort of buses to nowhere, which turn out to now be buses very much to somewhere. But we're not great at building infrastructure.
1: I just want to say one thing, though. You're right in a sense that the homes are better quality than they were maybe 15, 20 years ago. Um, but there's an issue that the the kind of ecological developments are happening so fast, our understanding of what we need to tackle mm-hmm. climate change, in fact, our own climate in this country is changing so fast, that we're getting to the point where anything that's rushed to be built now, and some homes are being rushed to be built because of the crisis, they are going to need retrofitting within about 15 years mm-hmm. because they're not meeting the standards that we're getting to in the very short future, very near future. So... That in itself, like when we hear uh, Sunak talking about this race to get a million homes, uh, you know, in the ground by um, the end of the, the, the Parliament, wh- what corners are being cut to achieve that, and what does that actually cost in the end?
0: Next up, it's a question from one of our Patreon backers in but your emails. Remember, if you back us on Patreon, your question could come up before the panel. Anne Driver says Johnny Mercer thinks 25 is too young to be an MP, or at least a Labour MP. Ian Dale thinks people are only criticising the noble Baroness Owen of Alderley Edge because she's a Conservative, and not because she's a 30-year-old Johnson crony with no discernible record of achievement. Anne's words, not ours. How young is too young to be an MP or a life peer? Uh, so I saw this thing from Ian Dale, and uh, who's meant to be the re- one of the reasonable Conservatives. Um, I challenge that (laughs) idea because it was absolute nonsense. It was an accusation of hypocrisy, even though one person is a democratically elected MP and one is an appointee to the Lord. So these are obviously, as Ian Dale well knows, completely different
2: scenarios. That said, is 25 too young to be an MP, Seth? I got into quite a heated series of arguments about... Past young MPs who've gone on to distinguished careers, you know, people like Roy Jenkins, Dennis Healey, even Winston Churchill, all started out in their 20s. But the point we often forget is they were pretty mediocre MPs for the first 10, 15 years of their lives, actually. They didn't do very much. They later became fantastic MPs, and there's a whole story to be told there about, um, you know, gaining experience in that way. Probably the best counterpoint is actually David Steele. David Steele got elected at 25 and at 27 was responsible for introducing a private member's bill that legalized abortion in this country. Arguably, his career all went downhill after that, including <laughs> 12 years as leader of the Liberal Party. I think what's actually more important than age is experience and what you have to offer. And one of the great curses of British politics right now in particular is this whole cast of professional politicians who've never done anything else. And that's as true of the 23 year old who gets elected as it is of the 45 year old who spent their whole life working in think tanks. Mm,
1: totally agree. But I would say that while it might not be completely desirable or the absolute pinnacle of potential to have a 21 year old or a 25 year old as compared to somebody who's years of experience outside. I think it's, a, it's the fundamental right of our democracy. If you're old enough to vote, you're old enough to stand. Well, that is the point absolutely. of our system. You're
0: legally allowed. You're yeah. legally
1: allowed. And, and it's, it, it's actually a critical point of our democracy. Anybody can stand hmm. and anybody can vote once you're 18. Um, and, and then the people choose. And, the, and the right it might be
0: useful uh, at a time when young people are feeling particularly frustrated about um, political representation to have more young MPs. I don't know how. Um, this latest one, Kier, kid little, little Keir, um, <laughs> is going to shape up. I think 25. 25, I believe, is when, when your brain actually achieves proper adulthood.
1: Yes, but in again, terms I'm, of being I'm, able to understand consequences. But the so thing I'm is... Like, yeah.
0: Before I'm, then, there were just kind of... It's little drink driving.
2: I'm less worried about the fact that Keir is 25, I don't care, frankly, as the fact that he was a fully formed politician arriving at... Oxford University as chair of the Labour Club at 18 or 19. Uh, That's the crazy. issue. It's about professional politicians. And let's not kid ourselves, the standard of MPs generally is pretty poor. And I firmly believe that young people as well as old people can be third-rate MPs and should have that right. But actually, I don't think the age is the issue. I think it's about what do they have to contribute. And we've had young MPs like Marie Black, who've really been quite mm-hmm. outstanding.
0: Um Baroness Owen, that just seems to me like a clear-cut case of like, you know you just shouldn't you shouldn't be in the Lord she's got every right to run for office, but she chose not to do that, and I just feel like the whole the whole point of being a peer is you would say you're a, a rewarding people who have excelled in their field who are experts, and it's really good to have a kind of wide range of British life and expertise represented in the House of Lords. We know that a lot of the time they are just cronies and that there are other people in the Johnson resignations uh, on his list who are just as useless and unimpressive, but they happen to be in their forties. Right. But that, to me, I think she's become obviously a lightning rod for that because it's like, well,
1: you can't even make an excuse because what have you done? She's yeah. not
0: like a thirty-year. I mean, you can do amazing thing. and they'd say, you know, obviously the most um, in. Uh, in um in physics, I believe, you know, a, a great number of people, the, the, the work for which they win Nobel Prizes was done before they were 30. You know, I don't think that applies here. Nobody, despite all the flack she's received, nobody defending her has been able to come up with anything. They haven't gone, oh, actually, she did this thing and people don't know about it, but it was actually very impressive. No. This, they've basically just gone, yeah, no, there's nothing, but, but the, we can do this. I so. suppose
1: the point about the age thing is that, again, age is relevant there because you could have... Uh, Talking about service for the country, you could have somebody who joined the army at 16 and was a a fantastic natural leader, rose up through ranks Mm. and led two tours in conflict by the age of 25 Mm. or 30 and then is given a place in the Lord's. I'd be fine with that because they've served the country. They've seen things that I will never see. They understand things about defence that I don't really understand. I'd like to see someone like that in the Lord's someone who's served Tufton Street until they're 30? No, thank you. And so it's not to do with her age, as you said. It's just to do with her lack of any clear, significant contribution to British life.
0: (laughs) Next up, multiple heat records have been broken since the start of this year, including the hottest day ever and the hottest June ever. Oceans and polar ice are warmer than ever. The Atlantic Ocean conveyor belt, known as AMOC, AMOC, may hit an irreversible slowdown as soon as 2025. In Greece, locals and tourists are being evacuated from wildfires. Arizona has experienced its worst ever heat wave. Parts of Sicily are without power and water because the cables melted and so on. How do we handle the avalanche of worsening stories about droughts, wildfires and actual avalanches of melting polar ice? Seth, before we get to the existential crisis, um, we'll look at policy. Labour, uh, a, a few weeks ago, decided to slow down their £28 billion pound investment scheme in green jobs and in industry and spread it out over the term. While the Tories, to um, were given up entirely, as Zach Goldsmith pointed out, wanted to delay the phasing out of gas boilers and petrol cars, um, backpedal on net zero. Is there any space for optimism on climate?
2: It's not auspicious because a lot of the policy is led by quick hits in press releases, followed by a failure to follow through. The problem is that the electoral cycle very often doesn't align with when people most feel the effect. I think if we have more general elections right in the middle of July or August, people might vote more accordingly to this. Um, Well, there's this fun fact about uh, which which came up in origin
0: story research. That when they had this pivotal pivotal congressional hearing on climate change in nineteen eighty eight it was during a heat wave, and to emphasise this, they chose the hottest day of what they thought was going to be the hottest day of the year and turned off the air conditioning and so people physically felt climate change, and obviously it doesn't quite work like that weather and climate are different things. But it did have that psychological effect.
2: And this is another reason why I'm convinced the Tories are (coughs) waiting until any time between October 2024 and January 2025 for the next general election to shut this down as much as Mm -hmm. possible as an issue.
0: Are Labour missing an opportunity here to seize this issue? Because the Tories are just essentially vacated it, essentially not interested. And there is a real risk, I think, that Labour is going to lose votes on the left to the Greens. Obviously, disgruntled gorbinites that's their natural home. But I think quite a lot of people who are disappointed with the sort of absence of promises from Labour at the moment would quite happily
2: go green. Yes, I think this is how electoral coalitions fracture. And this is how um, Labour may find themselves losing support once in power, actually, is on issues like this, where their natural supporters feel taken for granted.
0: Hannah, Lord Frost, uh, is, because he's the worst person, <laughs> is now arguing yeah. that rising temperatures will be beneficial to the UK. Um, now, we've had a long period of cross-party consensus that anthropogenic climate change is real, and you should probably do something about it, even if you don't actually do something about it. Ian Boris Johnson was he was making the right noises about this. Do you worry that as the Tory party swings right, that we're going to get US-style polarisation? And, you know, you see it in the, the commentary app not serious people, but people like Alison Pearson, just going, well, I've got some friends on holiday in Europe and they say it's lovely. <laughs> and it, it seems it's not outright climate denial, but it's getting there.
1: I think there's a really weird dynamic going on, which is that politics has lagged behind where the people were or are on this. And then the people have jumped ahead. So five years ago, or even three years ago, when there was this consensus, as you described, and things seem to be actually in a really good place around our leadership globally on climate... You'd hear a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, 35 degrees in the southeast, I'm all for it. Can't wait for us to have better summers. And these really naive remarks. There's much less of that now. Mm. And the polling shows something quite different, that there's a real consensus among voters that climate is a really important thing. And the roads and, you know, Greek island situation that's, that's happening right now has really sort of solidified that it's something very tangible that ordinary people can't understand this is somewhere I've seen I go on holiday um,
0: it's literally lo- on it's fire it's literally
1: on fire people are literally being evacuated also the cost of holidays going up so much tangible things all to do like related to climate and
0: change. also um, there's going to be serious uh, knock-on effects to um, crops Crop yields and food prices due to the Exactly. Temperatures.
1: And so the polling suggests that people are now very positive. And that was a really strange thing to see Labour responding to their loss in Uxbridge around you, Les. I know that is a health policy. It's not a climate policy, but people think it's a climate policy. Um, most people, most people in London actually support you, Les, which wasn't the situation five years ago. And so politics seems to be fracturing at the moment that the people... Are actually, coming together. I, I know people it's did. Very I, odd.
0: I know. I oh got what now did this uh, on the last episode, so we're not going to go into depth about that. But I found that mm-hmm. the most, the most dismaying, dismaying response to a, a by election. Well, it
1: was bizarre because the polls say something very, a very narrow
0: by election loss yeah. of what used to be the prime minister's seat, and then turned it into. And like you said, you you this in, in in a tradition of of the sort of you know um, of. Concerns about air pollution, which yeah, go back Clean to air the, the, the and, smogs yeah. of the 1950s and, and and all of that. And to turn that into like, oh, well, voters don't want action on the climate when all of the data shows otherwise. I was like, well, you, you, you really cannot. You are not, as I, as uh, Brian Cox says in Succession, I I, I <laughs> love Labour, but they are not serious people.
1: Sometimes they don't seem to be.
0: Has the climate crisis changed the way you think about global politics? Because I found myself, you know, watching the Brazilian election and thinking this actually makes an enormous difference to the fate of the Amazon and therefore all kinds of environmental knock-on effects if Lula beats Bolsonaro or not. The next US election will decide whether America is committed to reducing carbon emissions for the next four-year term. The Republicans clearly don't give a damn. So has it made you sort of more stressed about (laughs) elections in countries which which before you might have felt like were not directly affecting us.
1: Yes, actually, I think there's a couple of policies, not just climate, but climate is a clear one. And again, I think it's about that tangibility thing. So the effects of globalisation and the way we live are very tangible when it comes to climate change in a way that they're not when you think about economic globalisation. So, and this is what I think ordinary people are grappling with. So they're starting to get interested in Bolsonaro and Brazil um, and the Amazon Um, and they're interested in Chinese climate policy on air pollution and so on Mm. because because it actually affects them in ways they can understand and I don't think they could always understand the ways in which the you know large factories and child labour and so on in various parts of the country uh, parts of the world affect them at home. So Yeah, I do think there's this sort of understanding of what globalization really means. And it has made people start to latch on to global politics. There's there's a Trump effect as well. We've seen with Trump, um, some of his policies, not on climate, but around women, so abortion. We've seen how there's a ripple factor Hmm. from large nations like the US and their leadership. And so... I I think people understand that that's a risk with other major nations now and and on climate and other areas.
0: Seth, moving on to the emotion of it all, do you think that one reason that Just Up Oil winds so many people up is that they make them feel bad? Obviously, you know, they're disrupting the rugby or whatever, these are people who are putting their bodies on the line for the, the most important issue in the world. They're doing something that most people would not do. And I wonder whether actually it is there, it's easy to, to, to dismiss them as uh, a as, as sort of, you know, pampered, trivial, middle-class, blah, 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 which, you know, it's just a massive, obviously, crude generalisation. But I wonder actually that, that their conviction
2: is quite unnerving to people who not doing anything i don't think the conviction is the problem it's actually not in itself a bad thing to make people feel uncomfortable about an issue that's often how massive societal change happens in the first place as a starting point um, i think a, a wider problem might be that just Stop oil are not always great at the optics of all of their stunts and the degree to which there's a backlash against some of the things that they do and they may actually prompt more animosity than people agreeing with them that's more of an issue than actually whether they make people feel uncomfortable. Well, Seth, nonviolent violent protest is the activist's way of dealing with
0: climate anxiety. It's, it's doing something.
2: What's your way? Going on podcasts. No, seriously. <laughs> um, I, I actually reliance on public transport. I can't drive and that's partly a deliberate decision and I've just permanently my whole life put off learning to drive because I think there's no point in learning to drive unless you actually get a car. And there's no point in having a car unless you use it. And um, I don't want to have another internal combustion engine to add to all the others out there when I can just get the bus. But does that actually
0: help? Does that help psychologically? For you, because I don't, I mean, I get the bus,
2: but i don't think it helps me at all i think it's a totally fair question to ask anyone and everyone what are you personally doing but i don't claim by a million miles that i am you know championing this or doing the most by a long shot um, i'm trying to live a vaguely more sustainable life i still eat meat i don't do you know fantastic things on that front but i think as a starting point all trying to do something is, is better than nothing so do you think
0: it does make a difference to you
2: to me in terms to how
0: of- you feel because talking emotionally and psychologically, obviously everyone should do their bit and you know recycle and take fewer flights, etc. But I'm, I'm interested more in the um, in more in the phenomenon of climate anxiety, climate grief, as some people
2: describe it. Does that affect you? It's it's not something that's guilt. It's something in terms of there's a voice at the back of my head for most transactions of Do I really need to do that? Do I really need? This uh, There's something to be said, I think, about happiness in life generally around sufficiency. You don't need to conspicuously consume the most expensive model of everything. It comes down to, will this do what it needs to do? Do I really need to go that extra mile or just simply having a sandwich in this particular spot with a good friend might actually be just as helpful as jetting off to go and visit a, an exotic restaurant abroad for a weekend.
0: OK, Hannah, said it's not taking my apocalyptic bait <laughs> whatsoever. <laughs> um, how do you navigate the space between denial and, and utter despair?
1: I think most people are in that space because denial is not an option now. Most well, people are out of that.
0: You talk to Alison Pearson.
1: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, But despair for me is actually quite a futile emotion It's quite passive You know, to sit back And it's almost, it's aligned to depression, isn't it? It's kind of, it's, it's a very passive, not doing emotion Whereas what we need is action So on a personal level and on a political level Influencing what you can through democracy So despair, for me, isn't a useful emotion Whereas active concern, constant awareness I guess is how I handle it I mean like Seth I've made some small personal changes I had a bit of an addiction I'm not proud of this to those you know wipes for like wipe, pre-packaged wipes for everything cleaning your kitchen cleaning your bathroom and then they're awful they're awful for the for sea life they're terrible single use plastic and I finally broken my habit with that, which I it's a very small thing. But for me, that was like a domestic habit that had become completely ingrained. And I forced myself to do something that felt annoying and I've done it. And so I just I do think little things like that, they do help you feel like you, you need to engage with action. Yeah.
0: OK, I so i don't think any of this helps me Uh do you feel
1: deeply. Disp- are you struggling with? I, the don't, think, I, I, think,
0: I don't think. I think. don't think the 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 contemplating the vastness of the change to come. I don't think anything, any consumer choice, actually makes any difference to how I feel. I make those choices because I think that they are, you know, good and certainly uh, more helpful than not making them. But I was reading about. There's a little trailer for Oppenheimer here. The American psychologist Robert J. Lifton studied the psychological impact of living with nuclear weapons during the Cold War. And what he found was, quote, various combinations of resignation, cynicism and yearning rather than a belief that anything could be done. Mm. And the yearning was really interesting because a lot of the people, and and I see this sometimes in people's tweets about climate. It's almost like, bring it on. You know, we've been bad punish us mother earth like get <laughs> yeah. you know get it over with and that these are actually these very uh, toxic emotions in the culture and I wondered whether that this was our equivalent it was sort of I you know there is either the people who just go well I'm going to just um, first I'm going to deny it's an issue or I'm going to just ignore all the news about it which I certainly did uh, at one point point. Or this kind of like well whatever there's nothing we be done or there's almost this apocalyptic relish of kind of you know people that, con- that overuse like everything's on fire it's the end of the world as we know it kind of thing and almost seem to like get a kick out of it and it just seems to me there's all these like morbid symptoms mm. coming from from this and, that, and that, that is something operating on an entirely different Uh, psychological level to uh, consumer choices.
2: I was very struck by one of Al Gore's diagrams, which uh, had the blunt news about it. When you look at the effects that individual measures have on carbon emissions, none of it's going to do more than barely dent anything. And the blunt answer is there is no magic wand for any of this. But then what he started to do was to look at cumulatively. If you did that and that and that and you recycle and you carbon capture and you do wind energy and all of these things cumulatively, that's the tipping point. And so it really is about the totality of that and that sense of responsibility rather than just saying, oh, well, uh, we'll take a nihilistic attitude and there's nothing we can do.
1: I do know what you mean, though, but I do think that part of the issues and where these emotions come from is that, like some of the other things we've been discussing, it's just too big for us individually to actually grasp a bit like the nuclear threat it's that's a, a tipping point as well it's a political tipping point as opposed to a, an ecological one but again it's something that individually we can't grasp it's a kind of it's a, it's a cumulative thing and so people do have to get up and go to their jobs they have to feed their children put them to bed all of these things that get in the way of that that big emotional despair i suppose Ignoring the news about it, choosing to shut yourself away, that is something that I saw happen a lot with COVID. A lot of my friends would choose to be, oh, well, I'm just not watching it Mm. anymore. Because again, it's that thing of, I can't control this. It's not something I, other than taking personal measures, there's nothing I can do. It's very similar in that sense. But shutting themselves away did not stop deaths, just like turning off the news won't stop roads being on fire. So the despair thing for me is that it doesn't feel rational in the UK. If you were living in... Sub-Saharan Africa, there are reasons to be deeply despairing now and that's a legitimate response. Despair, for me, is not rational in the UK because we are not I don't think we've got the right to feel that level of... (laughs) Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, Rebecca Solnick calls, you know, that is almost sort of like a a developed world self-indulgent that you can make these grand sort of statements because you're not not living somewhere which is going to be um, you know, an immediate Future facing the consequences of this, and and what I found useful is people like Rebecca Solnit um, and the novelist Kim Stanley Robinson, who write about climate crisis as in the sense of like thing bad things will happen. Learn about what is like to happen, but also learn about the 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 difference between you know the middle ground between everything's fine and we're all doomed, and say so that actually the actions that that can make a difference. And I find that they it's that way forward that I was looking for Mm. when I was simply choosing not to read stuff. There was a book, The Uninhabitable Earth by David Wallace Wells, and I simply did not read it. And it was a bestseller. And I was like, I'm not going to read that. It's going to be horribly depressing. And it, it sort of was. But I found that thinking about it and knowing things was... It, it was no longer sort of the monster under the bed the horrible thing that you cannot look at or contemplate it was a series of things to to think about and I found that the confronting it was um, much psychologically healthier than knowing that there was this sort of dark shadow
1: I'd say, I'd say there is, you reminded me in this discussion that the, how I have had one moment of despair, which was not really about the grand thing, but about attitudes here at home. I wrote a piece for The Guardian a couple of weeks, maybe maybe a month ago now. In fact, it was when it was hot. So when was that? <laughs> Early June. And saying that we shouldn't put air conditioning on in the UK. You should not be going out and buying one of those small mini air conditioners that you can put in your bedroom because that you just can't justify in this country. The response was phenomenal. Phenomenal. I've never had a clapback like that for, you know, in in my, in my career. And it was mostly from people just saying, of course there were people saying although those with disabilities and I had exempted those in the piece and talked about that, but it was just people who didn't want to be inconvenienced. They wanted to have to feel at the perfect temperature at all times. There's great right to be comfortable at all times. And and, you know, their argument was always me putting my aircon on is, is not going to make any difference. This is a big geopolitical issue. Yes, I agree with that. But also you don't have the right to just be comfortable at the expense of consuming endless energy. But,
0: but to wrap up, um, maybe looking further down the line, I think that actually, we, we you know, many uh, parts of the world are getting to the point where maybe they didn't need air conditioning. And now that they do, in order to survive and that perhaps what politicians are going to have to be more honest about is adaptation and mitigation and that there is there has been this idea of that everything is about prevention and it's in order to climb closer in order to avert these changes well the changes are here we can obviously decide how big those changes are with the actions but the changes are here this is going to cost a lot of money far more money than Perhaps adapting to reducing our fossil fuel use uh, thirty years ago, but anyway, I do wonder I was looking at say it's like Arizona or whatever you know that the people who can't afford air conditioning there are sort of cooking yeah. uh, essentially, and that this is maybe something that that we, we really are going to have to go, well okay, actually you are going to have to change, we are going to have to change our lives in order to adapt and I don't mean change that in a sort of hair shirt way reduce our emissions because that's for the future but I'm talking about things adapting in order to live
2: yeah and I don't think we're fully prepared for the scale of that I remember 10 years ago something that had nothing to do with climate it was a bonkers think piece that uh, Tim Lonick put together arguing that cities like uh, Liverpool should have managed decline that involves just evacuating them. Well, how about evacuating entire sections of the world, or indeed entire sections of the country, because it's no longer environmentally sustainable to have cities there and it's no longer habitable. We can see that easily within not only our lifetimes, but within maybe a decade or two.
0: We've reached the end of the show. What are the stories that have gone under the radar this week? Hannah,
1: So I would like to draw everyone's attention to a petition, one of the parliamentary petitions that was authored by Helen Blythe. It's about making sure that children who have severe allergies are protected in schools. I wrote about this for the TES Times Educational Supplement last year and was absolutely shocked to discover that there is no legislation meaning that schools have to provide a safe environment for children who have severe allergies. Um, And this is now basically 6% of all children. I do have a personal... Vested interest, both my children are EpiPen carriers and my younger daughter starting school was a really frightening time for me. The author of this petition, Helen Blythe, her young uh, son died age five of anaphylaxis in school the one thing that the government can do is it can simply make legislation that means that schools have to have a policy on allergy that each child with an allergy has to have a proper protection plan so they don't accidentally Mm. die in school and uh this is not difficult to do it's just that they're not required to do it so if um i could draw your attention to it and if you would like to sign it i think that would be great for everyone
2: uh, Seth. We talked earlier about uh, Charlotte Owen's peerage, but of course, another person who took their seat in Lords was Sean Bailey, the former Tory mayoral candidate who uh went to the party gate. Well, we have the video now of uh, the event that he was at, at least for a early Not a young, but also unimpressive. Unimpressive, too. But the issue here is that when Rishi Sunak was asked about this uh, his office said oh it's nothing to do with us obviously it's too late it was Boris Johnson's list we, we just waved it through As they're basically counting on nobody having any understanding of how the Lord's appointments process works and Sean Bailey wasn't made appear until nearly a month after the party gate video dropped the government actively chose to keep his nomination going around. Um, they could have quite easily withdrawn it. The only thing that had come out up until that point was a government press release saying that it was their intention to one day make him appear. But we now know that um, nearly a month after the video, they thought no one would notice, and so he's now a member of the House of Lords for life. Brilliant. he be doing some good legislating, I'm sure.
0: Mine is that the, uh, the Taliban... I've got to say, my expectations of the Taliban were pretty low... Uh, but they've uh, they've closed down all the beauty salons uh, they gave in Afghanistan. They gave a, a month's notice. And this has thrown uh, 60,000 women out of work. But more importantly, it's removed the last place or one of the last places where women could just meet without men. Because there's all these rules about women can't, you know, go on journeys without a man with them. Um, and they basically just did what they always do. And they just go, well, it's, uh, it's, it's un-Islamic. And we're closing it all down. And I think that there is a tendency, particularly on the left, to you know to to be to be a bit sniffy about you know beauty, the beauty industry yeah, as an
1: industry. Yeah.
0: This was just a reminder of you know this is a part of the world where it is was enormously important and was a a space. For women to meet and to feel good about themselves, um, which of course the Taliban could not tolerate. And that's the show. Thank you to Hannah. Thank you. And to Seth. Thank you very much. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon as a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Ogilvot and our Patreon to find out how to get
2: yours. We'll see you next time. huge thanks for your backing and for listening to the podcast from me to tom evans james and sarah lines renewing her backing thank you
1: hello and a big thanks from me to robert harvey chris rainbow and david
0: oh god what now is presented by dorian linsky with seth tavo hannah fern and andrew harrison the managing editor was jacob jarvis and the producers were chris jones and me alex reese with assistant production from adam Wright. socials by jess harpin Art direction by Mark Taylor and James Parrott. Oh God, what now? is a Podmasters production. Welcome to the Extra Bit exclusively for Patreon backers. This week, Barbenheimer began as a jokey meme about two contrasting movies scheduled for the same day. But together, Barbie and Oppenheimer have given Hollywood its fourth biggest opening weekend ever, the only one not to involve Marvel or Star Wars. And the three-hour movie about physicists talking somehow pulled in half as much as the postmodern feminist doll movie. I'm the only person that's seen both, so we're going to focus on Christopher Nolan's contribution with a bonus panellist. If Podmasters was the Manhattan Project, then Andrew Harris would be either Oppenheimer
3: or General Groves, depending <laughs> on his mood. Hello, Andrew. <laughs> Hello. How are you doing? I, I think so. I'm more like uh, Dr. Manhattan. i think we been <laughs> dissolved in a chamber. What did you make of the movie? I thought it was fantastic. I thought it was uh, absolutely Uh, an incredible piece of movie making but I also think it did wonderful things with the theme and the thing that I enjoyed most about it or admired most about it was that it made you as a viewer as complicit to it as Oppenheimer himself Mm. because there is a ticking clock and you find yourself rooting for them will they achieve it will they achieve their goal and what you are cheering on is the potential extinction of all life on earth
0: well it's a thing I noticed uh, with James Graham's plays and TV dramas but of course He's not the only person that does that. Where it's the sort of heist slash sports movie part one, where mm. you get the gang together to do the really exciting thing that they say can't be done, and so you're rooting for them. And then in part two, you're just like, "Oh no, what have they done?" Yes, and it's such a um, it's such a potent uh, it's drama. A, it's
3: a Magnificent Seven, but they're the bad guys.
0: But you've got all this other stuff as as, as, as all this. There's a lot going on in this movie. I thought it was on reflection I think it's a masterpiece mm. and I think it's one of the best biopics
3: that I've ever it's seen it's quite hard isn't it when you see something that's a masterpiece and you say to yourself is, is this actually a, an historically amazing thing it feels like one mm. but I feel like a bit of an idiot coming out and going that's one of the greatest films ever made but I think it might be so the one
0: thing I would disagree with Christopher Nolan about is he has said that Oppenheimer was the most important man in the history of the world I felt that 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 actually maybe what the movie was talking about was the forces of history and the forces of inevitability. Because if Oppenheimer had fallen off a horse and broken his neck, somebody else would have led the Manhattan Project. Would mm. they have achieved their goal? I don't know. But you still had the physicists there. The science was still there. So did you feel... How much did you think it was? What did you think of it, and how much did you think it was about the man, and how much of it was about the kind of tides of history?
2: I thought it was a really great lens through which to see a bit of mid 20th century history and the 30s to the 50s, really. Um, fantastic film. I'd stop short of the masterpiece. I think it's a really, mm-hmm. really powerful film but flawed. Uh, At its best, it reminded me of bits of another biopic, actually, of a very different type, Lawrence of Arabia. No stunning visual scenery in that way. Uh, Nolan's style is much more choppy editing and and rapid cutting. But there is that idea of portraying a brilliant and seriously flawed individual. That was a teaser for the epic
0: bonus bit of this week's podcast if you'd like a little bit more oh god what now every week without ads and a day early then sign up to back us on patreon for as little as three pounds a month you'll also get our exclusive weekly mini cast oh god what else every monday morning and some fabulous merchandise thank you for listening and see you next week